0: Eventually, I was like, I'm just going to post these on Twitter because they were saying, tell the world, tell the world. I was like, that's the means that I have to tell anybody. So I posted the messages on Twitter and it ended up with this thread that ended up getting millions of views eventually.
1: Justice plays an important role.
0: I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments.
1: Such abhorrent crimes. Must not go unfunded. Proceedings
2: will be long and complex.
0: All right.
2: Hi, welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg, and this episode is supported by justiceinfo.net.
3: And I'm Janet Anderson. And today we're looking at Libya and specifically the trafficking of human beings, migrants, asylum seekers in Libya and from Libya towards Europe. So, what do we know? We know that people have been suffering terrible conditions and that the European Union has worked together with forces in Libya, a failed state, to keep people out. So, who's responsible and is there an avenue towards accountability? There's a lot of context here, but our focus will partly be on the International Criminal Court, as always. And that situation, Libya, was
2: referred to the court way back when, Stephanie? The UN Security Council referred Libya to the ICC in 2011. Uh, Libya was not a member of the court, so this was only the second situation where the UN Security Council kind of picked a state that wasn't a member of the court to refer a case to. The investigation uh, has thus far produced three cases, the ICC says. Uh, Against five suspects and included charges, uh, including uh, crimes against humanity, murder, torture, imprisonment, persecution and other inhumane acts. And war crimes, uh, again, murder, torture, cruel treatment and outrages upon personal dignity. There's an arrest warrant that they issued against uh, Muammar Gaddafi that was withdrawn upon his death. And there were proceedings against Abdallah al Senussi, which came to an end in 2014, when an appeals chamber said that the case was inadmissible before the ICC because he had already been on trial in Libya for similar counts.
3: And now we have a new prosecutor, Karim Khan, and he's picked up this uh, situation and these cases, and he's agreed with what was already started under Fatou Ben Souda the approach to broaden from war crimes towards crimes against humanity and look specifically at trafficking.
2: It's a fascinating shift um, and we can kind of see how the shift has gone because the prosecutor reports every six months to the UN Security Council and we can really see how this evolves. Just in May, Karim Khan spoke again with the UN Security Council with a bit of an apology about how long it was taking. And here he is and apologies for the clickety mic, but it's the best audio we could get.
1: These situations referred to by the council uh, cannot become never-ending stories. They need to move forward, and we need to ensure uh, justice. It it, it may be the case that the old adage, justice delayed is justice denied, is not correct. Maybe justice delayed still can be arrived at. But certainly victims and survivors have every right to see that their lives, uh, their hopes, and their suffering is looked at thoroughly and if there's criminal responsibility it is brought before uh, an independent court
3: but he also said um just after that, that uh, his new report to the Security Council is providing benchmarks and it's the first time that the Office of the Prosecutor is providing timelines against which its progress should be judged. So here we are sitting in judgment. uh, To join us today and to give us some real understanding of what's been happening and how accountability might proceed, we have two great guests.
2: The first is Marwa. Marwa Mohamed works for Lawyers for Justice in Libya and hosts the Libya Matters podcast. So we have a colleague on who will sound lovely, probably, with all her podcasting experience. And we also have Sally Hayden. And Sally's
3: an award-winning Irish journalist and photographer, and she's the author of um, an incredibly well-received book, My Fourth Time We Drowned. She was recently nominated for both the Orwell Prize for Political Writing and for the Michelle Dayon Prize. I might have my pronunciation wrong there, considering my lack of Irishness. So really good luck with both of those awards, Sally. We, we wanted to kick off with you and to ask you, how did the story start for you? How did you start to get involved with this Libya story?
0: Well, I guess that really depends on like the point in which you count from. I had been reporting on migration since twenty fifteen um mainly across Europe, and then later I had gone to Sudan and also slightly more unrelatedly to Syria to do um reporting on refugee routes from those uh from those countries and I mean, the genesis for the actual book, the reason why I started reporting on what was happening in Libya specifically was that I got a Facebook message. um, Pretty much, I mean, out of nowhere, that was from a man who said that he was among 500 men, women, and children stuck in what he said was a prison, turned out to be a migrant detention center in Tripoli. And what he said was that a war had broken out around them, uh, and that... Basically, they had been abandoned, that there had been guards who had locked them inside for months. But at this point, the guards had run away and they had no food, no water, and they were desperate for help.
3: And what did you do when you got that kind of a message? I mean, what what do you do next?
0: I mean, honestly, initially, I was slightly sceptical because I was thinking, why is this person messaging me and how do they have a phone? And, you know, this seems quite random. And so I messaged first a a Libyan journalist that I know in Tripoli and I said, is this true? Has a war just broken out? Uh, And he said, yes. And then I said, is it possible that there are 500 men, women and children in this neighborhood, like locked inside a building? And he again said, yes, there is a migrant detention center there. And so at that point, I started taking it very seriously. Um, This was way back in 2018, in August 2018, when an inter-militia conflict had broken out. And um, I then started contacting anyone I could think of, like NGOs, the UN, just saying there seems to be you know, there seem to be people in desperate need of help in this location, can anyone do anything? Or, you know, also, I was still a bit skeptical, I was going, is is this correct? And can anyone do anything? And they were basically responding, like, yes, that does seem to be likely, but we can't go there because of the security situation, you know, it's dangerous for our staff. So that was my first understanding of the fact that there were people just being abandoned, you know, they're They're just left to try and survive themselves, but that there wasn't you know there it's it's not a functional system like there's not it it's constantly a crisis system for the people who are locked up in these detention centers and initially, I had thought that this was an isolated incident as well, so I was thinking maybe I'll just get help for them. Um, And then, you know, everything will be good again. And I started posting their messages on Twitter because I'm freelance. You know, it takes time to get something published. So I was eventually I was like, I'm just going to post these on Twitter because they were saying, tell the world, tell the world. I was like, that's the means that I have to tell anybody. So I posted the messages on Twitter and it ended up with this thread that ended up getting millions of views eventually. But in response to that, I basically started getting contacted by more people that were working in Libya in terms of the humanitarian response, but also by more refugees in more detention centers who also said that they were in the middle of a war zone, that they had no food, no water, you know, that they needed help. And I ended up with contacts, I think, in nine uh, so-called official, you know, government-associated detention centers who were basically in direct communication with me about what was happening inside of them.
2: And so we're talking about these people in the government detention centers or government-affiliated detention centers. What kind of people end up in those centers in, in Libya?
0: Um, so, from my, I mean, my communication initially uh, was with people who would be considered, you know, as refugees generally if they had the chance to claim uh a right to international asylum. So as probably everyone here knows, the sad reality of, you know, refugee asylum law is that you need to generally get to the territory of the country that you want to then claim your international right to protection in. So these were people from countries like Eritrea, where there's a dictatorship, South Sudan, you know, war, um, Somalia, where there's Al-Shabaab, the Islamist militant group, uh, Darfur and Sudan, generally situations like that. So there were those people who basically had been trapped in this situation. They couldn't go home. So they had been trying to cross the Mediterranean They were caught on the Mediterranean, locked up in detention. They had no, they couldn't return home. So they were just stuck there. They were, they hadn't been charged with anything legally. You know, they were just stuck there indefinitely. But then there were also a lot of West Africans and they were more likely to stay not so long because there's an EU funded IOM repatriation scheme, which they, Uh, can be sent back home on. But they were people from everywhere across West Africa, pretty much like Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Gambia, Senegal, Cameroon, um, all all of these other countries. So it was a mix of people. um, But initially, my reporting focused on the ones who were seeking refugee status.
3: You've described these uh, conditions uh, that people were in a bit saying that they didn't have food and water and so on. But I mean, they'd already been through hell, I assume, to get there to start with, and maybe had already had a load of money taken off them by traffickers and, and 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 so on. What was happening to them in in these places? I mean, are they being held for ransom, essentially?
0: No, I. Uh, I mean, yeah, it depends on the detention centre, basically the way that it works or the way that it was working for many of those people anyway, that you basically go through years long process to get to a point where you try and cross the Mediterranean Sea. Like sometimes it can be shorter, but often it can actually take years spent, you know, in smugglers' warehouses, sometimes being exploited, forced to labor, all of these sorts of things, you know, along the journey. Um and at that point you generally are ransomed and you'll be particularly after the EU policy cranked in and I know we're going to talk about that a bit more but particularly after the EU hardened its migration policy and kind of stopped people from crossing the Mediterranean in big numbers you were more likely to be sold between different smuggling gangs and exploited and extorted again and again so that that period of kind of torture that you go through when you enter Libya it went on for a much longer time but then uh people would try and cross the sea so that's That was basically, like, actually, I didn't understand this before from media reports and stuff, but that comes at the end of a very long odyssey, you know, sometimes years-long odyssey that you then try and cross the sea. But since 2017, and sorry if I'm jumping the gun, but uh, the EU has been supporting the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept boats, so that that was the point that people then end up in uh, the detention centres that i was speaking about so actually the people that i was in communication with had pretty much all ended up in these detention centres as a direct result of european union policy and so uh, it it's, it's kind of you can be extorted in these detention centres as well you can sometimes be forced to pay ransoms but they're actually aligned with the government it's more um It's it's not the same as a smuggler's warehouse, you know. It's like an actual official place that is aligned with the at least the Tripoli-based UN-backed government. And people were ending up there after they tried to cross the sea. So, but then from there you could actually be sold back to a smuggler. You could either pay to go back, or you could be sold back to a smuggler against your will. So it's kind of like a cycle. It's not, you know, it's not so clear cut that you're like how the how the system works.
2: And Marwa, can you kind of sketch the contact in Libya in that moment? How is this kind of possible? What is the situation like that this emerges from?
1: I would say this is a product of what we saw following the 2011 uprising, right? So with the ousting of Gaddafi, and his 42-year rule, we see a breakdown in the institutions of the country, uh, the breakdown in the rule of law. And with that, then a total and absolute environment of impunity. Many then armed groups were formed and integrated into official Security sector, if you will, apparatus in the absence of a institutionalized military and institutionalized police system, these armed groups and militias became the quasi policing. However, and I think it's, it's important to kind of make the distinction that, that the context differs from one region of the country to the other, so what you have in the south is an area of different armed groups that are essentially then, because of the economic crisis, the, again one of the institute the you know the breakdown of, of Libya's kind of formal economy, uh, the marginalization of the south following two thousand and eleven, then you see, kind of turning towards these smuggling routes which then turn into these trafficking pockets along the way. And and it it is, I think, one thing that's important to to note is that those that are traveling through the South up North, it is a one-way path, right? So a one-way journey, you will go from South to North it is very, very rare and unlikely that you see the journeys go from north to south. So once you're up there, you have nowhere else to go. So And and like what Sally was mentioning, you kind of get pushed out to sea as, as your only other option. But now even that has been blocked. So it
3: sounds like quite a complex context. I'm trying to understand, are we basically talking about groups trying to make money or groups or is this about power i mean what what is it that is going on who who are these people who are who are doing these things
1: i think what's important to note is that they the trafficking um extortion does not operate an asylum it is part of a of a wider larger complex security system in the country that has now so, there is the the power factor, so you have armed groups that that have territorial control over certain areas of the country or certain cities, so you have zaya, for example, where the armed groups are in that that essentially that have been involved in the conflict um that have are are connected to the ones that are running the the detention center there that is connected to the um to the DCIM that are connected to the Libyan coast guard so they so it is an integrated system of armed groups that are either that act as the security apparatus of of the certain area but are also the ones responsible for the extortion and and the trafficking and all the other crimes committed In the South, it may be a little bit more different because you do have smuggling networks and trafficking networks. The sole purpose is to simply traffic and extort individuals coming through.
2: I'm not quite sure. We we mentioned the acronym before. So just in case we didn't, the DCIM is the Directorate for Combating Illegal Migration. And I want to check. So that is government affiliated. So can we then say the... Government is officially in charge, or is there someone officially in charge?
1: That's a good question. The, the DCIM, yeah, the the Directorate for Combating Illegal Migration, was established in twenty twelve by the government um, at the time to address the the uh, migrant. And such, situ- I think it's important to note that Libya does not have an asylum system. There's no asylum framework, and there's no uh, migration. Uh, management framework either so the DCIM was established to be able to to manage migration and at that time it was simply mass deportations that's how they addressed but then slowly uh, these detention centers that are recognized as official detention centers that operate nominally and I think the key word here is nominally under the control of the DCIM where in reality Many of these detention centers operate in complete autonomy. They are run by armed groups and militias um, that do not adhere to any form of of chain or uh, of command. The the DCIM falls under the Ministry of Interior, but there is essentially very little control that they have over these armed groups.
3: And a quick question just to hopefully complete a bit of this picture how many people are we talking about mawa
1: i would say at this given time and and the numbers fluctuate and i think that that's really important because it, it the numbers in detention do not give you the picture of what's happening today they're saying that there's maybe 2000 to 3000 individuals inside of the detention centers this is not a reflection of our reality number 1 um now that the summer season is upon us we'll see larger uh, numbers attempting to uh, to depart and and then we'll see an increase now with the system of of interceptions that are that has been established since 2017 by the Libyan coast guard funded by the EU with this system of interceptions we'll probably see an an increased number but at some point in time i would say You know, even in in 2017, for example, there was over 20,000 inside of these detention centers because of the conflict that erupted in Sabrata. So that's where I mean the numbers really. But usually it will range from 2,000 to 7,000 in different centers. But what is, I think, one of the most problematic to this is that the numbers are unaccounted for. So the numbers that are intercepted and disembarked in Libya are not the numbers that will end up in detention centers. A lot of them go missing. So I would say that we should be a bit cautious by looking at the numbers in detention as the final number. It doesn't capture the full story.
2: Sally, can you talk us through a bit of the conditions inside these detention centers? It would seem, from what Marwa said, that they are probably often overcrowded. What are some of the other things that that uh, that you've uh, been told or have possibly seen?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I write in my book that every every different detention center had its own particular definition of hell, and I think that there are many of the same things going on in in a lot of them, like you know starvation um, medical neglect, and in some cases, um you know, rape, violence, torture. Uh, different types of abuse and then in certain ones there are other things or kind of more pronounced versions of those things and the book I mean it covers a period generally between 2018 and 2020 but to my knowledge the situation hasn't changed the only thing is that sometimes detention centers will close and then other ones will open so if there's been a big scandal or if there's been something has happened that means that maybe it becomes not affiliated with the government for a while or it might close but then it opens again you know so in the in the book i recount in one for example zintan uh one person was dying every two weeks of medical neglect starvation and tuberculosis which is kind of associated and then uh Tejura, that was like a very famous one because there was a direct bombing on top of one of the um one of the halls that was housing refugees and migrants but actually they had been calling for help for a long time before that because they were being used to move around weapons they were being forced in some cases even to fight in the conflict or to help uh, fighters in the conflict and they were worried that they were being used as human shields by being housed directly beside weapons stores Um, in the end we don't I don't think I think the number that was released that died and that was above 50 but you know people who survived it said they thought that it had been a lot higher and I think it's important to say when we talk about the numbers in detention there's no formal registration system so we never actually know who is inside a particular detention center at a particular time unless they make a list themselves which actually did happen for me in one detention center they created a list just so that there was a record of who was there um in other cases you know there have been militia attacks people killed when uh, a detention center is attacked and then just various other forms of kind of mental torture as well. Like I documented in my book as well, there was one where people were forced to wake up very early in the morning and just line up and be counted. And they said that that was being done just to make them tired, that the guards would kind of try and force them to fight among each other um, or to be very, you know, basically just to try and make them uh, not be unified so that they couldn't basically protest their conditions and um yeah it's hard to sorry it's hard to describe everything that's happening but for example i met one uh survivor of a detention center seba sema i think it's called um i met him in person last week and he showed me a picture of when he was in detention of five people lying on a mat um very emaciated and he took that picture when he was there when they were being denied food and he said two of those people died so that's another big question that I asked when I was reporting on this. Like I kept asking officials how many people are dying inside the centres and there's no list of that. That number is not being counted. So I think that's it's important like that this data literally deliberately, I would say, is not being recorded.
2: And forgive my ignorance because I haven't read your book, but were you able to actually see inside some of these detention uh, facilities? Or is it mostly from talking to people who were there and and them sharing their pictures?
0: So I tried twice to get a visa for Libya and that was denied. And I also um, received quite serious security warnings about my safety if I traveled to North Africa, which made me quite hesitant about doing that. But I had contacts. I mean, I both had contacts within, you know, of people locked in the detention centers and then of NGO workers, aid workers who were traveling to visit them. And then I spoke to, you know, journalists who went there to do their own reporting. There are journalists who have managed to go inside. Generally, before they visited, I'd be told that things would be kind of cleaned up a bit, that maybe there'd be kind of, you know, the electricity is turned on. Maybe people are given food before that the guards then would be observing whoever spoke to the journalists and listening to what they said so often if a journalist visited I'd then get messages like you know even sometimes they'd find the news report they'd be like look here's me on the camera here's all the things that I couldn't say because I would be tortured if I had said them so yeah for me personally I wasn't able to travel there but I mean I do think that in a strange way you can get a lot more information by not being present there because even if I had gone there it would have been strange for me that I know who my sources are I can't speak to them because that would be that would be so dangerous for them so it was a very but I would I would have liked to go but yeah I wasn't able to.
3: Mawa your organization has sent some details, what they call an Article 15, where you gather up stuff and make an argument to the ICC about crimes against humanity. Maybe you can give us a, a summary of what it is that you're you're arguing there. and What kind of cases would you like to see the ICC tackle?
1: Um, yeah, so in November 2021, our organization in partner with FIDH and ECCHR, two other organizations, uh, submitted an Article 15 communication to the ICC urgently demanding that they investigate the crimes committed against migrants and refugees in Libya as crimes against humanity. Obviously, it's a confidential uh, communication. It was over 250 pages long, where we look at, uh, we interviewed 14 individuals in in depth interviews with their accounts as survivors. And we followed a very specific methodology, which is why we, we kind of had uh, 14 individuals. We needed to, number one, make sure that none of them were inside of Libya. That was the first criteria that um, for interviewing them. So as to kind of prevent any form of repercussions for, for speaking and so ensuring their safety. Another part of it is that we needed to make sure that there was a a referral system in place for uh, psychosocial support support um, after into interviewing our individuals, which we knew that in Libya they would not be able to receive, um, and that they were no longer in 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 the the situation of harm. In our findings, we obviously we look at the admissibility and jurisdiction of the court. We extensively look at the connection between because. The uh the jurisdiction that the ICC has in Libya is through the Security Council resolution in 2011, and so it has to be directly linked to the conflict. So we do a, a we look at the admissibility and jurisdiction directly linking the situation today against migrants and refugees to the conflict, um, and look at the contextual elements of the crimes against humanity. Amongst those that we have. Um, identified and and presented in our ICC communication is imprisonment, um, deprivation of of physical liberty, enslavement, murder, torture, rape. We do not in our communication extensively look at war crimes, although we make note. It's it, it was just a lot to be able to kind of look at both the war crimes. But it does not mean that war crimes have not been committed against migrants and refugees.
2: You're talking about kind of tackling human trafficking as a crime against humanity. Uh, Can you also kind of go into the wider implications of that? Can it set precedent for similar cases at the ICC?
1: What we're hoping that it would, But I think essentially, and and so there has been, and you make note of Khan's speech in in May and earlier in November, and there has now been a direction to to also kind of encourage domestic prosecution of these crimes in, in European courts. While this is great in many ways of identifying individuals, what we have been advocating for is that, this is not enough. Domestic courts will not be able to capture the full complexity that the i c c would be able to do in investigating the crimes under crimes against humanity so while yes, there would be we're setting a precedent we it is encouraged or urgently requesting that the i c c take this on at the level of crimes against humanity that domestic courts may, for many reasons, may not be able to neither. Maybe they don't have the legislation in place in order to address these. um, And so therefore um, downgrading them to to more, perhaps organized crime. They do not have the tools to go after more high ranking individuals. So they'll go after more kind of lower ranking. Um, and then don't have the resources to look at this full picture and its complexity and its widespread and systematic nature. So it would be more of an individual uh, crime.
3: And part of that uh, complexity, as far as I can uh, hear from, from what both of you are saying, is to do with what the European Union has been up to, that the change in policy there, the change in how they've tried to to manage migration has actually led to potentially some of these crimes. Is, is you, You've already mentioned this, Sally. Is that the way that you see it?
0: Sorry, Dad, it has led to some of these crimes.
3: Maybe I'm putting it a bit uh, a bit boldly there, but yeah, that the, they have some kind of responsibility for these, these crimes that are being committed on, on Libyan soil because of the way that they're working with the Libyan authorities.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that you have, like, a lot of desperate people who are desperate to reach safety, right? And so they're always going to try and find a way to travel. And, I mean... Sorry to keep referring to my book, but I document in my book how people lost faith in, for example, the so-called legal route, the resettlement route, um, which, for example, in Sudan was hit with a big corruption scandal in 2018, um, where UN officials were accused and one later found guilty of taking bribes for resettlement. So people... You know, the the vast majority of people that I interview, they don't have faith in any other route to get to a safe place. And so they need to find a safe place. They're fleeing from something very serious. And actually, as a refugee, you know, or as someone who's escaped this sort of situation, it can be very expensive to stay still because you're being exploited constantly. For example, in Sudan. Uh, refugees face constant harassment from authorities. They're constantly, you know, at risk of being deported or forced to pay bribes or sexually abused or all of this. So they are trying to find a safe place and that's why they end up in Libya. And then what you have is what Mark Mark McAuliffe, for example, who's a researcher on this, has called, called going from monetization of movement to monetization of captivity. And that's being. That change happened because of the shift in European Union policy, which has effectively tried to stop people from crossing the Mediterranean Sea. So you end up with people who are trapped in Libya, who are then being exploited again and again and again. And since 2017, um, more than 92 or 93,000 people have now been intercepted at sea, men, women and children. I mean, it's not there's no you know, there's no assessment even of the vulnerabilities of these people. And from from what I've seen in Libya, everybody's vulnerable. And so they're being forced back into then again, these detention centers, which are, you know, places again where they're being exploited and they're being forced back there because of the European Union. And then they're ending up In a cycle where the only way to get out of that situation, unless you wait for like a very limited, again, legal resettlement or evacuation, the only way to get out of that is by coming up with enough money that you can pay the guards who will generally accept it to go back to a smuggler who may then exploit you, you know, or torture you or whatever, and then send you back to sea again. So you're like trapped in this endless cycle. I think another thing that, for me, is very important to highlight, you know, there's always this discussion about uh, how terrible trafficking is, and of course it's terrible, but I do think that that trafficking and smuggling is used by European politicians to kind of deflect from the actual reality of the fact that people are seeking safety. And what I've seen in my work anyway is that the people who get punished for smuggling or trafficking are actually the most vulnerable people. And I went I attended the trials of two quite prominent uh traffickers or smugglers in Libya, Kidani Zacharias, Habtameriaman uh Walid. Uh he's known as Walid, but his real name is Tualdi Grotam. I went to Addis Ababa and I attended their trials and I was the only independent observer apart from an Ethiopian journalist who came with me there was no human rights groups there were no UN representatives and there were definitely no embassies and I contacted the embassies saying why are they not monitoring this trial and I would say as a result of the lack of international attention one of those men then escaped from prison basically allegedly bribed his way out and he is now on the run again and he was actually referenced I think in the latest ICC update they were saying that they had given information or I read this to be him that they had given information to the Netherlands who have now named him as one of their most wanted criminals but for me I was in a room with this man I was literally like face to face with this man and I was the only one there who was watching this trial and I watched his victims come up one by one risking their lives to say what he had done to them only for him to escape because of lack of attention. And that's what I think of when I hear particularly European politicians or Frontex or whoever saying that they care about stopping traffickers and smugglers. I think why weren't you in that room at that time, you know? It wasn't that I talked to the prosecutors. They said, of course like observers are welcome. Why would they there? I don't know. This
2: seems like a very complex situation with all kinds of different influences and all kinds of different little cogs. And levers. Uh, Marwa Karim Khan has a really difficult job to balance all this. And part of his thing is that he wants countries to prosecute things for themselves. Do you think that the ICC will push for more domestic prosecutions? Or do you think they will actually take on these cases themselves to prosecute for crimes against humanity?
1: I think, like I was saying earlier, we hope that the ICC will take this on, um, it does. It shouldn't negate domestic prosecutions, right? Domestic prosecutions may have an individual or low-ranking individual, but what we need to see is the crimes against humanity um, aspect. The crimes committed have to be characterized as an international crime, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And because this has... Obviously, like I was saying earlier, you can then, you know, hopefully get more high ranking individuals, look at the full criminal network, look at the widespread and systematic. There are new players that are coming up today within this context. They're finding how lucrative this is. The system is. Uh, it is lucrative on every level, from the security apparatus to um, the detention centers, extortion And without looking into the complexity of it, I think that what's important is when we're also kind of pushing back against European policies that is training, equipping and providing the resources and assistance to the Libyan Coast Guard. Our starting point today has to be these are crimes against humanity. You are helping to send people back to a situation where they face crimes against humanity. It is not, you know, detention of simply arbitrary detention or, but they are, they are then getting stuck in a cycle that, um, and I think that that should be the starting point of the conversation with European member states today, that they should ultimately at this point in time, step back and cut off all migration um, cooperation with the Libyans until a system is put in place. The ICC should be investigating, should actually open an investigation into the crimes committed um, under crimes against humanity and war crimes. I don't think that the world is capturing the gravity of what is happening inside of Libya and everyone is operating on a very business as usual level which is very disturbing
3: thank you both very much for uh opening up this uh situation to us and to giving us some details we'll always finish off every podcast with three questions we'll spread them out between you so let me start off with you sally is there anything that we should have asked you or anything that you wanted to say that we didn't get a chance to ask you uh so far
0: I don't know. Yeah, I think Marwa has said it very well there that I think people need to be aware, they need to pay attention to what is happening. And I mean, I think a lot of us feel like we've been shouting into a black hole, because even me, I like, sometimes I just become so tired of talking about this. And then I feel like I'm not doing enough. And then I feel like I'm becoming complicit as well, particularly as a European in this situation. I don't think we mentioned that along with uh, supporting the Libyan Coast Guard, the EU is also doing surveillance across the Mediterranean. And so they're flying drones, helicopters, planes to spot refugee boats to give information that then aids with interception. And so from my perspective, and I mean, this is why I wrote my book from this point, that's the point that, that we as Europeans are undeniably ethically culpable as to what then happens to people in the aftermath of that and I think this is also a broader topic isn't it it's about what rich states are doing to fortify their borders now and to keep their own citizens happy basically and and some of this money is then propping up it's making life worse for example empowering militias is making life worse for Libyans who are also victims in this and that's very important to say The other thing I'd say is that I do actually do a full chapter in in the book on looking at uh, the legal kind of legal challenges happening. And one of the questions that I was asking is, can the European Union be held accountable or can European politicians be held accountable? And it seems very unlikely. But I mean, there are people that are asking those questions. And I think that those questions are really very important as well, you know. That it shouldn't just be Libyans that are, you know, being the ones that are targeted, because that's kind of a deflection, isn't it? Um, In one sense, not, I mean, you know, not in every sense, but in one sense, we also need to look at, at our own politicians and our own leaders. Um, and apart from that, of course, like you said, I wrote a whole book on this topic. It's called My Fourth Time We Drowned. And it it, it really like came about as the result of the extreme bit bravery of a lot of people who were in these detention centers. And for that reason, I hope people read it.
2: The other question we ask that I'll ask this time of Marwa, because also because you are more looking at all the kind of legal challenges and cases, do you have a favorite kind of court case uh, legal situation that inspires you uh, to do the work that you do?
1: That's a good uh, question. I think, to be very frank, I've been working in Libya on the refugee and migration situation since 2008. I've watched the evolution and development of how all of this has kind of taken a turn. Um, I've seen 2014 firsthand. I've seen 2015 and the increase in numbers. You know, I've worked on this for a very long time and and I am finally have now started to realize that advocacy or advocating on the good faith is not going to work i think that it can only be challenged legally to to actually then see some form of change in policy it uh, unfortunately i do believe that that really is the um which is what inspired you know the icc communication what inspires um, we published a report, a shorter version of the ICC communication that also looks at the European complicity in this whole system, which is called No Way Out, about uh, migrants and refugees trapped in, in Libya. So, I do think that you, we've seen some very innovative approaches by by lawyers and legal minds that are trying to tackle this um, on the European side, at least on different um, levels. And I think that we'll continue to do so. And I am inspired, I would say, um, by the... You know, the Heresi versus Italy case, by the um, you know different other smaller cases that that are still ongoing today that I won't be able to mention, but these are um, what inspire, and I do believe that this that our our way through this is legal.
3: Final question to both of you is uh, about what you've been reading, listening to, or watching that you'd like to recommend to people. Now, obviously, we have to, to start with two recommendations, your report, Marwa, No Way Out, we'll put a link up to that, and Sally's amazing book, Fourth Time We Drowned. So we'll we'll make sure everybody is very clear that those are our big recommendations. But in the meanwhile, what else should people be reading, listening to, watching, even if it's nothing to do with justice and accountability. Maybe you spend your time on Netflix watching something else completely different. Uh, Sally, what about you first?
0: Oh my God, I feel like, uh, yeah, this is very on the spot. I don't know, I haven't had that much time, to be honest, to think about anything else. So I feel like I'm being thrown every time I get asked a question. But not, sorry, not to promote myself too much but i would say that we're running a series i work for the irish times as well we're running a series at the moment that's looking at different things that young africans are doing across the continent and it's looking at different like uh you know fashion designing in ghana or the music industry in nigeria or um you know, we have some stories coming out on Kenya soon, like about a death metal band there and stuff. Um, And I do think that maybe people would be interested in that because, you know, I don't know, for me as well, we're... Like what what this story that we've been talking about, it's so horrific, you know, and it is people are fleeing horrific things and and it's very important that we highlight that. But for me, like working as an Africa correspondent, it's a huge, huge continent. And uh sometimes, you know, it feels that people might just take one one situation that's happening and feel like that applies to the entire continent. And I guess um we wanted to run that series to show like different different the different situations in different countries so maybe they'd be interested in that I feel sorry like I have read and listened to things recently but I'm just blanking on everything but I've also been enjoying your podcast to be honest I've I've been listening to it the past week so
2: that's always lovely to hear um, Marwa, do you have any recommendations apart from also apart from your report we should also recommend your own podcast uh, I feel as fellow podcasters but is there are there things that you listen to for work or even if you I don't know we talked to one journalist a few days ago and his uh, his go-to uh, distraction was skateboarding videos so <laughs> we're in for all kinds of recommendations
1: so I don't know. I kind of feel I'm put on the spot because it, I'm, I'm. it's rather boring. It's all things Libya. So Libya matters. Um, definitely. That's what we've been kind of uh, focused on. Our next season is coming out in June, I think. So that I've been consumed by that. But I am reading uh, Feminist City right now, claiming space in a man made world. So that's kind of my, my free time reading when i disconnect it's either cooking shows or or that so yeah where i get to switch off
3: thank you um thank you both very much for recommendations but also as we said before for uh, you know helping us understand more the complexity of libya and tying it back to uh, maybe something in the hague but maybe something a bit further and again good luck Sally, um we really hope that uh, you get the further awards. You've already got some, but the further awards you deserve for your amazing book.
0: Uh thank you. To be clear, like I honestly don't mind about awards. I find them like a bit um awful in terms of I mean, I literally write in the book that I f that I was kind of disturbed by receiving awards for this kind of work because, you know, you as like a white European then being you know fated or whatever when actually this is a horrific situation um i don't know i'm uncomfortable about that aspect of it but at the same stage if it makes more people read the book or know about the situation i'm very grateful so and, and i'm grateful to you guys as well for having me thank you so much
2: well thanks for coming on i think yeah if it gets more people to read the book this conversation certainly got me to look on my kindle and, and get that started so thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us and uh let's hope that we'll have more to talk about with possible ICC investigation and some progress finally and then we'll have you back on thank you very much
1: thank you bye thank you
0: This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in The Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of
2: innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action.
0: Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.